while the evening is young, and we don't know yet what the final tally will be, I think we know enough to say with some certainty that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. If you heard some of the stuff we were saying just a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, see, I was pitching to Will before we went on mic. You know, we gotta have a Patreon, we gotta start pulling in the cash. And my big selling point wasn't the money, because, like, Will's, unlike me, he's already a high roller. He's got two podcasts, he's living that, like, <laughs> high, high-rolling podcast lifestyle. So my main selling point wasn't the dozens of dollars that we could potentially make from patreon it was we could be super problematic off mic we could say all the stuff that we want to say there is a time in every episode at least once when something will happen and luke will say oh you better cut that (laughs) and usually it's something very innocuous you know (laughs) just me talking about the international banking conspiracy (laughs) you know stuff you know stuff that we can all agree on as long as it's behind a paywall (laughs) and of course nobody if it's behind a paywall and nobody can take it out of context ever then then sure (laughs) well it's great to be back we had we had two episodes um kind of in in i guess rapid succession a la michael and us season one style one one week after another but it's been i guess two weeks and now it's back to just us it's just the boys you know the original recipe no guest this week um i finished my bottle of wine will is uh, about halfway through his (laughs) We watched uh, The War Room, which is, it's tedious, but it's kind of fun, but it's also kind of tedious. And It's a pretty seminal film, I think it's fair yeah. to say, at least in terms of its uh, uh, reputation and the, the shadow it casts. Mm-hmm. A film by the great D.A. Pennebaker. Yeah, and, the, tr- the actually great, yeah. non-ironically great D.A. Pennebaker. And, and his partner, Chris Hedgedus. Uh, D.A. Pennebaker, uh, director of a favorite film of Luke and Mine, the bob dylan documentary don't look back oh that's great and also i'm just gonna throw it out there i know this is a michael moore podcast so i don't want to be um heretical but i would say pennebaker is maybe the most important documentary filmmaker ever Hmm. like he's the guy who started using friggin handheld cameras so that he could get closer access and capture more spontaneous moments well he if that's not an important thing he played a role in the seminal robert drew film primary which details camera which midwestern state primary between kennedy and hubert humphrey which you know kind of was one of the early films in like american i guess neorealism you could say you know kind of documentary realism cinema verite cinema verite yeah that's sorry that's been i've been it's been a while since i was a film major just this kind of documentary style where there's no you know narrative overdubbing there's no voiceover it's just the camera up close and uh, and that's the style that the war room is in as well and if anybody follows luke on twitter they know that he loves the clintons so i think well they're the new kennedys yeah i learned a long time ago that tweeting anything about hillary clinton or bill clinton is not very good for my brand so you know i plan to remain uh, non-partisan on this episode (laughs) 
That's your politics generally. I mean, this film kind of reflects yeah. your politics. Like, you're very much kind of like a, a left-right kind of rapport <laughs> on this, you know, and, and you're more... Well, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative and yeah, uh, also socially conservative. You've, you've, you've moved you've moved a little bit to the center, I yeah. think, throughout the podcast. I believe more than anything in, like, debate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think why people like to listen to this is because they like to get, you know both sides of the issue like 360 degrees mm. and then they could make up their own minds and they also like you know i think we very we very much champion you know it's politics and you know it's it's you know red and tooth and claw but it's without rancor because at the end of the day you know, we just have a drink together team, and you know? you know we just all we two canadian millennial podcasters just want what's best for america in <laughs> 1992 in the 1960s, D.A. Penny Baker's Don't Look Back and Monterey Pop captured the legends of rock and roll. Now, D.A. Penny Baker and Chris Hedges bring us the making of the first president from the rock and roll generation. Somebody who's been through a lot of tough elections, James Carville, is known as the Raging Cajun in the business. So let me tell you what's at stake in this election. Just about George Bush and the whole sleazy little cabal of them. You're going to get tax breaks for the wealthy. You're going to get a guy that doesn't know what a grocery store scanner is. I'm getting sick and tired. I am every single night hearing one of these carping little liberal Democrats jumping all over my you-know-you-know-what. I'm George Stephanopoulos. I'm director of communications. Bush was on the defensive. Another good night for Bill Clinton. Three debates three wins. I guarantee you that if you do this, you'll never work in democratic politics again. If we cannot believe anything he has said about his past, how can we believe anything he's saying about the future? Well, I think Mary Mallon's got a good career in fiction writing when this is over. I'm lost. I don't know where I'm supposed to go next. Turn Perot off. I don't want to look at it. How are you? Nice to see you. Stay focused. Talk about things that matter to people. We love Hillary's new patriotism thing. It's the economy, stupid. Speak from your heart tonight. I mean, that's all that matters. Read my lips. Just the most famous broken promise in the history of American politics. He is so yesterday, if I think of an old calendar, I think of George Bush's face on it. Landslide. I like the way this thing feels. They change the way campaigns are won. The War Room, from D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges. This is just the most American thing you can do. <laughs> So the year is 1992. The Democrats have been out of the White House for 12 years. Really what the Democrats need if they're going to recapture the White House is some fresh blood, some youth, some vigor, and a whole new approach to politics. Enter George Stephanopoulos and James Carville, who are really the smartest men in the room, the boys who are going to turn everything around for the Democrats and create a new style, a new kind of politics. So that's how I remembered this film. <laughs> And I think that's very much how this film is remembered. That's what this right? film thinks of itself. You see, I'm not even sure, though, because, you know, watching this movie, I was struck by how this could be any campaign. It could be Republican or Democrat. It could be it could be now, frankly. Yeah. I mean, a lot about campaigning has changed. The war room in this movie is shockingly white. Mm. It it's also seems very small scaled compared to what it would be now. Well, but, now it would be it would be industrial size. Mm. But just in terms of kind of the small things that mm. they're preoccupied by, you know, the reality of a campaign is such that they're not really thinking about, you know, the issue. Stuff. Th yeah, <laughs> they're not thinking about stuff. Like, it, it, it literally is the horse race. Mm -hmm. uh, all the stuff 
could be now. Would you agree? I would agree with that to a point, except that I do think the rapidity of it does actually reflect the campaign that they're representing as well. I mean, I, I mean, the film, it's true, focuses on the horse race angle. I mean, the fact that you do get these very candid moments of Stephanopoulos and, and Carville, and they're just, the level of debate is mostly kind of like, how's President Bush going to talk about the deficit and America first when he gets his signs made in Brazil? You know, like, it's just, like, that's where kind of American politics was in the early 90s. Like, it was, you know, unbelievably narrow, kind of parochial. And so what passed for kind of youthful dynamism was the fact that Bill Clinton was you know, a bit younger than George H.W. Bush and had a kind of like, I don't know. A certain s- swagger. Yeah, sort of like I was part of the 60s 25 years ago kind of vibe to him. I think it's fair to say that Carville and Stephanopoulos really buy into the hype around themselves. Oh, they, yeah. They carry themselves like they're these young, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really Car- Carville's cool. pushing 50, which is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny in this film, like, how it's supposed to be, you know, capturing all the youthful energy of the Clinton campaign. Even Bill Clinton looks really old mm-hmm. and, and kind of square. But, like, most... Like, Stephanopoulos is the only person who could conceivably be called young that has any significant camera time in this, I would say. Even he looks kind of old, I would say. <laughs> he, he could be 45. Yeah. Anybody who lived through the 1992 campaign uh, will, will probably know the plot. It starts at the beginning of the primaries, the first really significant incident is the jennifer flowers scandal you know something you pointed out while we were watching it is like of course nobody cares about stormy daniels because there is precedent for this sort of thing. oh yeah we see the comeback kid era and then it, it fast forwards the democratic national convention and then it was the sk- sk- skipping the over the execution of ricky ray rector or, yeah ricky you know, ray rector is not mentioned yeah. by name yeah. or or in any other or way. invoked in any other uh, which is interesting because that was a very you know deliberate strategic moment and in fact i don't know this is a bit of a digression but i don't know if i can't remember if it was the intercepts lee fong or zai jelani that asked bill clinton in 2015 or 2016 about ricky rector mm-hmm. i think that was like the first time for like 20 years anyone had ever put it to him he ignored it of course yeah clinton doesn't appear in very much of the movie he appears a bit at the beginning and then every now and then later he's, he's a structuring absence and i think one of the things the movie does well actually is it captures you know the feeling of when you're in a room with a politician that like distanced that imper- that that impersonal closeness yes yeah we see the debates and there's a really exquisite moment backstage after the debate when stephanopoulos is running from room to room and at one point he, he stops by a room and he keeps saying bush was on the defensive bush was on the defensive <laughs> Bush was on the defensive. Keep saying Bush was on the defensive. Then we see him run to a media scrum and we see him say, oh, Bush was really on the defensive through this debate. (laughs) It's so theatrical, like in that way of kind of, this is the first time he's ever said this. And it's just, it's just the facts. It's not, there's no spin here, folks. There's a subplot in the film contrasting James Carville with his wife, Mary Madeline, who's not his wife yet, but they are dating. They married the next year. Mm -hmm. And Mary Madeline is the James Carville of the Republican Party. (laughs) Actually, you know, a fun fact, their relationship inspired a movie in the 90s. Possible future episode. Possible future episode. A a movie called Speechless with uh, Michael Keaton and Gina Davis. (laughs) 
This is why we keep me on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it all climaxes on election night where it start. Oh, actually, sorry, I missed a, a really crucial scene, which is the scene right the night before election night when Carville stands up and he delivers a speech to the war room where he's like, I, you know, I, I, I won my first campaign when I was 42 and, and we changed the way the campaigns have been done. <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, <laughs> you know, the campaign is a hierarchy. It's a hierarchy. And, and people are in one level and people are in another level and they they, they never meet, but... Used to be. There was a hierarchy. If you were on one floor, you didn't go to another floor. If you were somewhere on the organizational chart, there was no room for you there. Everybody was compartmentalized. And you people showed that you could be trusted. Everybody in this room. Everybody. And people are going to tell you you're lucky. You're not. Ben Hogan said golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the lucky I get. <laughs> the harder you work, the luckier you are. I was 33 years old before I ever went to Washington, New York. I was 42 before I ever won my first campaign. And I'm happy for all of y'all. You've been part, part of something special in my life. Now, never forget what y'all have done. Thank you. So that was my favorite part of the movie. And then finally, it climaxes with... The election where we meet Stephanopoulos and Carville on the morning. They've seen some of the exit polls and they think things aren't working out for them. But, you know, the first results come in and it turns out it's a landslide. It's a blockbuster. It's a, it's, it's, it's a whopping 39% of the vote, folks. But, but a massive electoral college victory thanks to... Well, friend of the show, uh, patron saint of the show... Uh, Ross Perot. The best president America never had. (laughs) Ross Perot. Ross Perot, who looks like his own Dana Carvey parody of himself. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I didn't live through Ross Perot, so I I don't see him often. I was kind of struck by just how on the nose he looked as Ross Perot. He's great. He's such a 90s phenomenon in that, like, like, it's so funny that you had the Democrats and the Republicans are already so ideologically close at this point, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have, like, this other guy who's like, you know... Washington is out of touch. Like, what we need is, like, a pro-business, you know, <laughs> guy who's into protectionism. and I mean, his, his campaign was basically just the middle of the middle of the middle plus being against NAFTA. It's really funny in kind of the age of Trump where there's this particular kind of newspaper editorial board position where it's like, you know, what if we had an outsider president like like Michael Bloomberg or Mark Zuckerberg or like we need somebody who's from outside of the political class and it's like mm-hmm. you're just you're just describing the Ross Perot campaign. Mm-hmm. Like like somebody who just their outsider position is like they have some slightly eccentric difference with the Washington political elite, but they're essentially of it and don't it's really disagree with it. It's the Ron Paul revolution. <laughs> it's a really dispiriting experience to watch this movie. I mean, I, I, enjoy, yeah. I enjoyed this movie. It captures something about the tedium and the reality of a political campaign. You would know more about that. Yeah, than and I, uh, just before we go on, I mean, I would say I've worked in campaigns. I've, in fact, been in the war room of, of one campaign. And, and it, you know, funnily enough, I mean, because this is an early 90s campaign, so before campaigns kind of were quite happening on the industrial scale they are now. And this was about the scale of the particular campaign that I was in the war room for. 
So, I mean, you see all the tedious campaign things that you recognize. They're always kind of surrounded by crappy food. There's always a half-finished can of Pepsi around. There's just stacks of paper mm -hmm. that are hugely relevant for two hours before you recycle them. All the conversation is this kind of, you know, what color do we use for the backdrop for this thing? You know, it's, I think when you're, certainly when I was, you know, like a, you know, wide-eyed 18-year-old and I was into politics, I thought, you know, wow, to work at that level of a campaign, it would be so exciting. Mm -hmm. Cause you see, I think what you would have wanted though is like just being on the inside. The fact of being part of that system, and it's it's validation in a way. It right? is, yeah, it is that. But it's also that you think of that stuff as kind of heroic, and then when you get there, it is just uh, well. Here's where the different campaign buses were today. Here's where our campaign bus is today. Uh, here's the message box for the day, and that's just like three pretty boring yeah. kind of... We see Stephanopoulos <clears throat> on the phone, you know, trying to arrange where should the gores be during yeah. the acceptance speech. And, and the fact is that even though, even in 2018, we still have this kind of cult of the high-flying, ingenious Machiavellian political operator, like the, the vast majority of politics is boring. There are a few real intellectuals in politics, and honestly... The, the intellectuals there are, if, if they can kind of combine like basic campaign acumen with being intellectuals, they're often deadly. But there's hardly anybody like that. Like, mm -hmm. that's not what most of this is. Most of it is incredibly boring. And it's days upon days of, well, weeks upon weeks or even months upon months, depending when you start. For me, it was months upon months of, I mean, crappy food. You know, you gain 15 pounds. I mean, just the worst food. You're working like a short day is 12 hours. It's just the most tedious stuff you've ever done. And if you're lucky, the thanks you get is, you know, you, you, you might like kind of win and you might get a job after. In my, in my case, neither of those things were true. <laughs> but, but, you know, so I like this movie as somebody who has kind of been through on kind of several occasions that aspect of, of campaigning. Now, Governor Clinton has a character problem. But I take it that your Governor line of, no of counterattack is that it's un... Well, I mean, he, he's, he has not denied that he has engaged in marital infidelity. He denied a specific one. He has said one. that he had problems in his marriage. That's right. And he, uh, he has talked about the draft. And to some people, it's a character problem. Bill Clinton's passed his character test throughout his life and throughout this campaign. And he's shown it through his commitments to real fights. And what he's going to do in this campaign is focus on what's important to the American people, on the jobs and the education. That's what the American people care about. They want to move into the future. But, I mean, I think that the film is also a specific document of a specific time. And there is something very dispiriting about... Because it's... The thing is, it's presenting this kind of Clinton-Gore thing as some kind of insurgency that's masterminded by these genius kind of backroom people who are running this different kind of campaign and i mean no offense to dia pennebaker but i mean if you were like a martian and you watch this movie you have no idea what bill clinton is about the closest we get to it is in carville's like quivering cloying saccharine little speech on you know the day before the election where he says you know if we win more people are going to have better jobs there's another and, speech that he gives early in the movie where it's at the, at the height of the Jennifer Flowers campaign where he talks about, you know what, I, you can't lose sight of the real enemy because because the real enemy is threatened by our positive vision that we're putting out there. But there's no specifics about what the positive vision is. Yeah, the positive vision. vision. Is. So you get, you get more people are going to have better jobs. More people are going to have better education. 
that more, means more people yeah yes <laughs> more people are going to be able to like afford health care yeah but it's like it's not but i mean i think in, in fairness to da pennebaker i think that's partly the point of the movie i mean yeah you can't make a movie like this and leave out politics I mean, leave only kind of the grunt work of politics in, but leave out the the mm. ideas of politics. No, but these knowing these it. people don't really have that many actual politics. I don't think. I mean, um, and you know, you talked about Carville's relationship at the mm. time, and I mean, look, you you see a lot of his girlfriend at the time, now wife, in this movie, and it's like it's just hilarious that she's out there attacking bill clinton he's out there attacking george hw bush and they go home together at night and it's just like this doesn't matter like i mean honestly if you really cared about it that much i feel like it would be an interactive unless it was an incredibly special kind of relate but probably not right i mean you just it, like you can't have that kind of intractable difference like it's obviously just kind of a game to both of them they're both yeah. the thing that obviously interests them both is you know the game of campaigning and kind of the yeah. one the brinksmanship yeah. and game all. recognizes game yeah yeah they yeah. see a little of themselves in each other mm-hmm. this is a time in politics that a lot of people are obviously really nostalgic for Five. obviously obviously why. not you but you know it's also a time in politics when i think it was record lack of engagement oh yeah the voting rate was very low at this time and this is really the decade when the election had been narrowed down to you've got a couple of key primaries and then after the primaries in the general you've got a couple of key swing states so they could really target the election down to i don't know 500 voters in some cases yes yeah. 500 affluent voters and most people were completely alienated from the process and I feel like this kind of runs counter to the narrative that the movie and the campaign are pushing, that this is this youthful, exciting insurgency. It's really striking watching it. Just kind of, I mean, it's it's anachronistic to watch now, but it also seems just very mediocre. I mm-hmm. mean, it just seems like these are people that are doing marketing and it's not really about anything. All the kind of dramatic moments in the film are just the two campaigns sniping at each other over this minutia and the George H.W. Bush campaign kind of saying, you know, that Bill Clinton lacks care and then the Clinton campaign, you know, firing a salvo back about how George W. Bush is a hypocrite on the deficit or something mm-hmm. else, some something else rapier like. And, and there's so cutting. much talk about family values, and we see all this these campaign literature that have hack slogans, kind of along the lines of you know, in Taxi Driver, when Albert Brooks is on the phone and he's talking about, oh, you gave us these buttons that say we are the people and it's not we, we are the people. It's and we are the we people. We are the people. Oh, sorry, I messed up the scene. It's, you know, absolutely vapid and everyone knows it's vapid yeah. and really it's so there's the seeds for the discontent that lead, led us to where we are now. There's the great scene where, where Travis Bickle is, is driving, uh, what's uh what's palantine the, he's driving palantine in his cab and then palantine like i've learned more in the taxis <laughs> of america that i've learned in <laughs> in any political meeting yeah. <laughs> it is politics conducted at that level it's so obviously fake and, and everyone knows it's fake and the people who care about politics at this time and now really mm. they enjoy talking about politics as if they're insiders yeah like you talk to them and they, and they like talking about oh the optics of that are going to be really mm. bad that's right so in the 90s the adult thing was to be like well we all know this is basically bullshit so the the mature adult politics thing 
is to be like, well, we know it's bullshit and we just need to embrace that. And that's how you become a high flying political you know, operator who, who gets it. I guess this must be the reason why Clinton was able to survive all these scandals at the time. They were able to look at, say, the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Mm-hmm. Whenever- People were also just more sexist. OK, that's true. But like everyone had this like almost separate the artist from the art defense of the <laughs> that's Lewinsky right, scandal yeah. where they were like, oh, this is a political distraction. And really, is, is he good at his job? Yeah, it's like, I just want I just want my president to focus on the deficit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what they know is that, like, the narrative they're being fed is not to be trusted. So the movie is an incredible document of a campaign that's basically about nothing. I mean, where the, the sphere of debate that's happening is, is so, so small. And it's amazing to watch it in 2018 because it is such an anachronism. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, all the people, all the players in it see themselves as really transformative i think and you know really important figures in kind of the history of american politics and it's so funny to contrast the self-understanding of what these people were doing at the time and what five years later the blairites would do in britain the excitement around that to contrast that with kind of what they were actually doing which was essentially just taking the reagan thatcher revolution to its kind of next phase while adding kind of this very soft kind of socially conscientious varnish to it. Um, Where do you think the excitement came from? We see people being excited in this movie. What are they excited for? Sure, I mean, I'm sure Clintonite politics was really exciting to like a certain kind of affluent upper middle class voter. I mean, uh, you know, the Clinton-Blair era, I mean, they did basically i mean they didn't create it but they embraced and understood and kind of codified this new constituency of i don't know what they would have called the united states but in in britain they called it you know the aspirational class mm-hmm. right this was the class of kind of white collar professionals uh you know educated educated yeah. um in a big way kind of centered around um instead of industry finance who were you know they were aspirational they believed in innovation and meritocracy and social mobility this was kind of the classless society that margaret thatcher spoke of where every single person was just their own little rational economic actor who was self-maximizing and who you know plugged in the inputs education you know investment whatever and then what you got was kind of proportionate to what you put in and for a certain class of people for a few years that was really exciting And, you know, and I guess to a wider group of people, I mean, you know, the Clinton campaign in its own way was very slick and Blair as well, you know. Also, I mean, importantly, there were smart people at the time that were saying this is really important. There's a British commentator, I don't know who the American equivalent would be, but there's a British commentator who's very smart, who, you know, still writes for the Guardian Observer named Will Hutton. Uh, who wrote a book called The State We're In in the 90s. And, you know, he's a, you know, kind of a left liberal economistic type writer. And he predicted in the 90s, since admitted he was very wrong about this, that the new labor was was creating a new form of capitalism. There was an intelligentsia behind this. And I mean, um, and I think that allowed a lot of people to kind of just be like, well, I mean, the smart people say this is good. Just there were, and with Obama, it was, it was even more, there were more people like that. So everyone could just kind of partake the thrill of like, well, and there's not a Republican in the White House anymore. And, you know. I guess political parties also represent a set of, you know, cultural signifiers. It's oh like, yeah. Got the Rhodes Scholar in now. and Yeah. And all the showbiz people I like, all the brands I like. Absolutely. There's something vulgar and base about, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's and the Anchor 
Coulters of the Ted world. Ted Nugent. Yeah, Ted yeah. Nugent. Like, that's not me. I'm Jon Stewart. <laughs> I still believe in a place called hope, a place called America. Thank you. God bless you. One reason why the movie was a little like hard for me to watch as most political documentaries or political satire from this time is hard to watch is as you said it feels so anachronistic now the the subtext has become text in politics something like this seems seems redundant when the point of something is that it's all a horse race that everything on the surface isn't really what it means we know that now everything's bubbled to the surface mm-hmm. it's not a it doesn't seem like a profound point anymore you know well and when you think about how an election the kind of minutia that's depicted in this film of kind of campaign strategy and logistics how that's just social media just publicizes that mm-hmm. all the time now and in a big way makes every election about that mm-hmm. it's far yeah it's far less interesting isn't it mm-hmm. so there's a very good piece recently by ryan cooper who's great to follow on twitter if you're if you're not following him who i think you know tends to write for the week but he had a great piece in the nation called the rise and fall of clintonism his argument is that clintonism was you, you, the best way to understand it was as a response to kind of multi-decade transformation of American capitalism, which began in the 1970s, you know, which ultimately was quite unnecessary, which tried to resolve various, you know, economic crises, basically through neoliberalism by adopting, by abandoning Keynesianism and by abandoning aspects of the New Deal. And Clintonism worked for kind of the early phase of that. You know, and I often think about this in in the British context as well. I mean, Thatcherism actually looks kind of sclerotic when you put it up to Blairism, which is almost like more zealous about Mm. a lot of the same things and has this added aspect of like, instead of having this hint of, you know, the old Toryism about it, it is just openly like obsessed with globalization and... Blair was obsessed with the European Union and stuff like that. And Clintonism is kind of the same. It takes the basic Reaganite economic settlement, but then it adds this kind of veneer of like youthful dynamism to it and a faint socially conscientious kind of thing to it. And at the time, anyway, in a context where, you know, people, the economy, capitalism is still the disaster it always is, but it's working better for more people. And, you know, there is a genuine transformation going. There's all these new tech jobs and things like that. And you do have a new middle class that can propel this. And that just isn't the case more than two decades later when, you know, the order that the Clintonites and the Blairites in the 90s created has really kind of become undone. And, you know, economic growth is sluggish. Real wages for the average person have not grown for decades. There's the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression in 2008 and a democratic administration with a huge mandate instead of kind of actually dealing with it decides to treat it as sort of a random weather event and just kind of lets it continue, bails at the banks and moves on like nothing happened. You know, in that context, all of a sudden, like this doesn't really work anymore. And trying to kind of court this aspirational class of sort of conservatively minded professionals who might be, uh, in a sense, socially liberal in the sense that they're like, you know, in favor of, 
yeah, same-sex marriage. But then if you ask them, like, what do you think about the West Virginia teacher strike? They'd mm-hmm. say, well, you know, it's probably a Russian psyop and also unions are outdated and they should be disrupted or, what, you know, whatever, you mm-hmm. know. That class of people, they're not really the leaders of society anymore and they're not, they're not new. They're not big enough as an actual political constituency, uh, especially in, in the American electoral system where, like, you can build up massive majorities in you know, New York and California, or Hillary Clinton was the first Democrat to win Orange County for a very long (laughs) time, you know, but it didn't work for a few reasons. I mean, it didn't bring, you know, the remnants of the Democratic New Deal coalition on board. And also, it, it honestly overestimated the virtuousness of conservatively minded suburban voters in, you know, Pennsylvania, suburban Pennsylvania and Ohio, where I believe it was Chuck Schumer, the James Carville of our time, the great campaign guru, who said, you know, for every vote we lose from like a working class person in Michigan or whatever, we're going to gain two, you know, or three in the, you know, suburbs of Pennsylvania. Those people, I'm afraid, are much more reactionary than a lot of the Democratic strategists thought. And uh, they voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly. So I think I know what your prescription for the problem is, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I really think the Bernie Sanders campaign showed that you don't have to... I mean, we actually, we haven't really, we haven't really talked about uh, this aspect of the, you know, Bill Clinton campaign, but, you know, a central premise of it was you just have to capitulate to this new Mm -hmm. order. And that means you, it means not only you kind of grudgingly accept the... You know, corporate donations and and kind of pro-business policies and stuff but you actively embrace them as like we're more switched on with the stuff than the republicans are in the 90s the way politics worked was that only the affluent people were voting and that's what they wanted i've heard lots of democrat leaning people say that they what they want is for poor people not to vote because they're going to vote for donald trump even that is a little bit unsure i mean donald trump lost the working class vote right but that but like that's their assumption. That is the that they is the assumption. Gonna, you and I know that Donald Trump's constituency is middle class or upper middle class. Mm. Like. His average constituency is much closer to that than yeah. the stereotype, which is like instead of dumping on like some suburban asshole with a mean streak who lives in uh, some rich borough in Pennsylvania, it's like no, it's a laid off coal miner in West Virginia that stayed home. But I think there's a great distrust of too many people being engaged. I know they kind of oh yeah s- they signal at every election. Oh what geez. Gee whiz, why aren't young people voting when these are the issues that affect them? Mm-hmm. But when young people actually vote, they get really upset about that. Like what? And this is why this movie is representative of a certain time when they had basically narrowed the electorate down to a few people. That's right. Well, and of course, you know, to be topical for a second, there was that great Joanne Reed tweet, you know, a couple days ago about about the West Virginia teachers, where it was like they're in this important strike for better wages, and like if they started voting for politicians that supported these policies. Uh, watch out GOP that was so fucking they're, disgusting they're literally Good striking God. against the shitty billionaire democratic governor yeah. uh, who he was like a republican and then he flip flopped and became a democrat and then he's like no because of course getting engaged I mean you're absolutely right getting engaged means becoming another obsequious loyal servant of like you know <laughs> DNC talking points mm. but yeah I mean I think the prescription is that you know of course actually executing this in detail is of course a lot of work and you have to be very ambitious and 
you know, people do have to be engaged. It takes a lot of mass support and a lot of popular energy. But I mean, I think the Bernie Sanders campaign showed that, you know, you can fundraise independently of this. There is a sizable constituency of people, and they're not all young. A lot of them are young, but they're not all young. They just, just understand that the American political system does not deliver. And, you know, I think one other thing that needs to come up in these conversations that people need to understand that, like, especially if you don't live in the United States, I don't know how adequately this is understood in the United States, but if, like, if you live in Canada or another Westminster-style democracy like Britain, or honestly, almost any other liberal <laughs> democracy in the world, you're like, okay, well, political parties. So that's like an actual thing you can join. And it's like, uh -huh. if you and I lived in France, like, I don't know, it's like you would be a member of the, you know, uh, Macron, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. You'd be you'd be a member of his party and I'd be a member of like, you know, the left front and Mélenchon or whatever. That feels good because I would win every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, in France, I guess... The political parties, especially on the right, they kind of tend to change names and stuff. But like, they do tend to be kind of things that you can actually join. And you, you get know? to vote on, you know, and their platform. Yeah, so, and that's actually a big difference between New Labour and the New Democrats, as they were called in the United States. New Labour had activists, right? I mean, I don't like those people, I don't respect them, but like, they actually were... I mean, it was in some ways a top-down thing, but I mean, there were, it had a, a bottom. It had people that were kind of excited about it. They were passing these incredibly reactionary resolutions mm -hmm. at labor conferences and stuff. The United States not like that. You can register as a Democrat or an Independent or a Republican, but... That, that's not the same thing as being a member. If you wanted to attend the NDP convention that was a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa, I mean, all you had to do was pay like a few dollars and, you know, then you just show up mm -hmm. and then you're a member and you can vote on stuff. And that's not the case in the United States. Like the two major Sadly, parties... Sadly, I was washing my hair that weekend and I couldn't <laughs> You missed it? it. Yeah. Um, two major parties are just competing kind of Soviets of like the, <laughs> of, you know, the American ruling class. I mean, mm -hmm. and and people, you know, the, the leaderships of, those, of both the two parties really want people to be switched off. And I mean, the only solution is to figure out how to organize independently of that and do the opposite of what this film depicts, which is, you know, have these kind of petty squabbles where you're trying to compete on the turf of marketing with the rival campaign, which, you know, you don't really disagree with in any kind of really substantive way where politics is a game of kind of cultural signifiers and it's like do you have the yale educated people in power or do you have the people that you know who are endorsed by you know pat robertson or whatever okay you say that but i mean you can't argue with the results i mean we had 12 years of reagan and then we got a 39 percent victory <laughs> and, 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 and college and blowout. think of the and progressive achievements I, we got I, we got the we got the crime bill we, we mass incarceration well needed welfare reform my friend <laughs> that's right responsibility first uh you know we, we got that fucking aspirin factory <laughs> <laughs> you know that point you made earlier about how these people think they're such transformative figures and really they're just you know i mean fly shit on the wall maybe. of history yeah but what does that make me <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got a popular pod. You've got two popular podcasts. Like, like, sorta popular mm. podcasts. I have over two thousand Twitter followers. <laughs> Every time that somebody comes along, that's got some ideas, a Democrat comes along, the Republicans come up here and they ambush them. 
Remember Muskie? Okay, that is standard procedure. And here comes Clinton, he comes to New Hampshire, people here hurting, they want hope, they want somebody with vision, he gives it to them. So what do Republicans do? They get together with their wedge issues and they knock it off. If they succeed this time, it's going to be every time. You are never going to get a presidential candidate. Okay? You're never going to get somebody to come up here and run for president that served 11 years as governor, has got any kind of experience. Okay? And every time somebody comes up, they're going to do it. If we win this, then you have knocked this shit back forever. Okay? Well, you say that, Will, but I think Michael and us nation is going to prove you wrong. I, you know, I've been trying to convince, I'm addressing the listeners now, because yeah. uh, Will is consistently Oh, now you're uh, going to turn my fans against me. <laughs> we really enjoy interacting with you on Twitter and, uh, and elsewhere. We've What's got some really kind yet? emails. Like, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Will's more of a, he's like a very, he's a pre-Madonna. Cause he's kind got, of J- the J.D. Salinger of the duo. <laughs> he's, got, he's got two podcasts. You know, I'm just, I'm just... Sitting here humbly with my, you know, 28,000 Twitter followers. You're my side piece. uh, (laughs) And uh, I'm the Robin to his Batman. Um, (laughs) And, uh, but, you know, uh, we we enjoy, we really do enjoy hearing from you. And some people have kind of said, you know, we want more Michael and us episodes. We want to give you money. You know, I got to say, I wouldn't object to either of those things. People don't realize this because they only hear what's on mic, but... Essentially, with Michael and us, what Will and I did was we turned our weekly hangouts into a podcast. I mean, I guess we do kind of watch, like, art films and stuff like that once in a while. But we used to watch them all the time. Uh, we did, we did used to watch podcast. them more, but we would... We would I feel like we're kind of idealizing how many we watch because because I feel like frequently we would get together and then we'd be like, well, let's watch a big movie, and then we'd end up watching, like, some stupid, like... <sighs> You know, like, you'd be like, ah, but there's this, like, you know, C-Stream movie from, like, the Reagan era (laughs) where, like, some guy, like, shoots up a bunch of buildings or something. Anyway, I think a lot of the times we just end up kind of watching crap. Um, And then, but then we talk about it, and um, I don't know, I think, you know, the kind of moment of 2015, 2016, 2017 kind of gave us, you know, a lot to work with. It gave us kind of a focus we didn't really have before, but the fact is... In its own way, Michael and us, I mean, I think, you know, the formula we've discovered... We've helped heal the nation, I think it's fair (laughs) to say. I think think it works because, you know, we structured it around Michael Moore and that gave us enough of a kind of a... That gave us kind of the skeleton we needed. But there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we could be talking about... um, you know, like we had that uh, that interesting conversation a while back of, you know, 90s movies and how they're always about like dads in crisis. And I was talking to you before we were recording today about like True Lies, which I watched while I was on Good my vacation. Film. And, you know, I don't think those things really properly fit within the Michael and Us universe because, you know, this is a place where, you know, we have to spend most of our time, you know, kind of displaying our reverence for kind of forgotten heroes of history, whether that's Al Gore, <laughs> Howard Dean, you know, um, war hero, Purple Heart winner, John Kerry. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff we could be talking about, and I think it might be fun to do kind of some bonus content around that. Okay, here's what here's how I'll do it. My email is very easily accessible. If people send me via PayPal or whatever <laughs> whatever service you have, ten thousand dollars. <laughs> then we'll no. do the jingle all the way up. Then episode. we'll do the jingle all the way episode. <laughs> and, and by the way, 
that doesn't have to be just one person. Like <laughs> that's ten thousand dollars crowdfunded from all of the listeners, and I think we can do it. <laughs> so if you like the idea of you know any kind of Michael and us bonus content, um, you know we're thinking about a you know some kind of subscriber model. If you just can't get enough, um, you know we might have multiple levels of support. Whether you want to give it the Howard Dean level, the John Kasich level, the Al, Al Gore level, or, or email. if you just want to send us money. <laughs> I th- for giving you hours and hours of free entertainment. I think we've earned it, frankly. I think you're a bunch of fucking freeloaders. Now watch this drive. <laughs>